Thanks everyone for joining us for another edition of uh, you know, Path to Becoming a CFO. I'm really happy to have uh, Jason Child join us. And you know, Jason was an auditor uh, for many years at the beginning of his career and then moved into technology finance uh, you know, operating roles. He was at Amazon for about 12 years, really a period of rapid growth. And, and then he was also CFO at Groupon and Jawbone and Opendoor. And uh, now he's the CFO at Splunk for a little more than two years. It's a $24 billion public company right now. And uh, lots of amazing lessons that I'm sure we'll get to dig into. And Jason, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for uh, having me. Excited to be here. Fantastic. So let's, let's ju jump right in, Jason. So. You know, if I look at your background, you spent about seven, eight years, uh, classic, your CPA uh, as an auditor, and then you decided in the late 90s, it looks like I'm going to go work in technology companies, and you've done that for 20 years now. And so I'd love to you know, learn a bit more about that thought process and, and decision and, and why you thought uh, being in the technology industry would be uh, the fun thing to do. Great. So, you know, I, I think the technology industry and especially growth stage companies, uh, they're just, they're very appealing, uh, you know, for, for the name growth. <laughs> and uh, I just naturally gravitate towards markets and roles that I think have potential to expand exponentially, you know, in the next few years. Um, you know, there's something in my early days at Amazon, Bezos said something that really stuck with me. And he said, in low growth companies, opportunities for advancement within an organization are limited and often arbitrary mechanisms are used to determine who gets uh, promoted. Uh, in high growth companies, growth opportunities arise as companies scale and opportunities you know, to advance are just created organically. And so those are the types of environments uh, that I love. They tend to be a bit more meritocratic. Uh, it's a big part of, of kind of why I love growth companies. That's awesome. So you know, when you join Amazon, it was not obvious they were going to be a big company, right? This was this little crazy company that thought they could sell books online, uh, but then you went through this crazy ride with them for about uh, 12 years. Tell us about that. What was that experience like as one of the very early people uh, at Amazon? Yes, yeah, so I joined in uh, early 99 and uh, it was uh, it just hit about a billion dollars in run rate in revenue. Uh, I stayed for about 12 years and I think when I exited, it was about 50 billion. Um, you know, I, if I kind of step back, um, and I think about that experience. There, I don't know if you, there's a, a kind of a podcaster and professor, Scott Galloway. He has a kind of a, a statement that resonated with me, which is to achieve great balance in your 50s, you need to have very little balance in your 20s and 30s. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, I was lucky enough to join Amazon in my late 20s when Amazon, it was about four years old. Uh, you're right. Many thought it would fail. Uh, I actually loved it because I ran kind of the the book, you know, kind of book reading program at, uh, at that point, I was in the uh, kind of uh, more in the Accenture or consulting part of Anderson. And, uh, and that's how I got addicted to it. And it, I just saw what the internet could do uh, firsthand. But um, I don't know, you know, the, the thing I would say is that ultimately, we'll talk later about this, but working in any company, it really is just the ultimate team sport. And I think while resumes focus on individual achievements, nothing really great is ever achieved without the right team, the right culture, and the right mindset. And so I, I was just, you know, I was lucky enough to be part of teams that drove, you know, free the move to free shipping, which now seems kind of funny because that wasn't a, actually a thing back in the early 2000s. Uh, we then, of course, that ended up 
uh, um, becoming foundation to our loyalty program prime, uh, you know, also had a chance to work closely with, you know, the incubation of AWS and, and then probably about a hundred ideas that never worked that no one talks about anymore, <laughs> but ultimately, uh, you know, a Amazon figured out a lot of things. And I, th I think ultimately the thing that another Bezos thing, uh, ism that he said was, you know, if you take a 10% chance or he would take a 10% chance, uh, a, a hundred times with a hundred times payoff or asymmetric outcome, um, uh, but know that you'll probably be wrong nine times out of 10. But if you take those chances, you, you will probably be, you know, get to the right outcome. And I think Amazon did that better really than almost any other company I've seen or been part of. Yeah. And also, you know, given that journey that you've had, it's, it's always been fascinating. I've had the good fortune of being able to, you know, uh, interview lots of accomplished CFOs. They all have very diverse journeys and routes uh, that they take to get to uh, that uh, CFO role of an impactful company, right? And, uh, and, and the two usual backgrounds are investment banking, finance, or audit, and you yourself came from uh, that audit background, which actually the numbers suggest uh, is, is uh, rare for somebody to uh, get that CFO shot. But when you think about uh, you know, your own journey, uh, what did you do to round out that skill set to get that opportunity to be the CFO and get that top job, right? Okay, look, look, quick little story and then I'll answer the question. So a few years ago, I interviewed, uh, I'll just say a now very famous CEO and, and very large public company. This was pre-IPO. And the CEO said to me, when I look at your resume, I see some bad decisions. How do you explain this? <laughs> and, and so we went into this long discussion. And basically what I figured out was he was judging success based on the companies you joined and how they did. And I told him, look, my, my uh, approach to any opportunity has always been what am I going to learn and, and how is this going to help me grow? And then, and, you know, success comes, you know, I think as a, as a, a combination of the right factors, but certainly growth for me has always been, been key. So, so I guess really to answer your question, to me, my primary tenant has always been just staying curious. And so, you know, I started in audit. I did that. I actually did audit for about three or four years. Then I moved into kind of a consulting function within the firm and really got excited about that. And then I had a bunch of clients that, you know, weren't super interesting. And then I got a chance to, one of my former clients went to Amazon and then I saw that and, you know, just kind of got a chance to jump in. And honestly, I, you know, I just got, I just got really, really lucky in working with so many incredibly smart people that once I saw the different opportunities, you know, I, I, I eventually became controller uh, and I was woefully underqualified <laughs> to be controller at the time, but I did that job for a little while. And then luckily had just a great CFO who just said, hey, you need to kind of rotate across different areas and really figure out what you're great at. And, and that allowed me to, you know, do investor relations and then do some uh, FP&A. And then I actually, you know, I moved overseas for a few years. And, and so there's just a, a, lot of, um, a lot of different opportunities that kind of, that kind of launched. But, but ultimately, it was really just being curious, being willing to try a role that felt maybe scary and felt maybe not safe. Uh, and ultimately that's, I think mostly paid off for me, even though, you know, I've had some, uh, I've had some experiences that were probably tough and maybe not, not deemed successful today, but, you know, as I like to say, I'll, I'll judge my success, you know, probably when I'm retired. <laughs> so speaking of those tough experiences, you've obviously been part of some massive successes like Amazon and Splunk now, and, and also companies that have had those challenging roller coaster rides, right? Like Bitcoin and Jawbone and, and in terms of how they 
those experiences, the tough experiences shape you as a CFO today? Like what are some of those lessons you took away and, and, and how, are you a better CFO because you went through those experiences? Uh, no question. I, I, to me, um, the biggest learnings and probably the most influential learnings and experience has definitely been in the challenging times. Uh, the good days kind of blend in with each other, <laughs> uh, maybe a few milestones occasionally, but for the most part, the good quarters, the good days, the good whatever, good earnings results, all that kind of stuff, those kind of, you know, start to be hard to remember. The ones that were really messy and that, you know, you learned something and those are the ones that really stand out. So for me, 2001, right after the dot-com crash to 2005 at Amazon, where we were fighting for our lives, trying to get the free cash flow positive, trying to prove the per unit economic model, getting to profitability. That was a, a super intense time. And honestly, that was far more educational and probably more fun for me than the last five years that I was there, where the business was really starting to fly well, was really taking off. And that was great, but it was the early years that were kind of most influential for me. Then when I went to Groupon, uh, you know, I joined a company that, you know, basically wanted to get on file in five months and we didn't have an accounting team and <laughs> had to hire a few hundred people. And at that point, it was the fastest growing company in history. And so it was kind of a crazy time. Uh, we ended up having the biggest IPO since Google at the time in 2011 versus Google, which was 2003. And, you know, that was, uh, there's a ton of learnings because a lot of, uh, <laughs> there were a lot of problems that popped out of it. Uh, in fact, a number of changes, in, in fact, the IPO process changed after that era. There was us and a couple others that had some challenging IPOs. And that's when they created the Jobs Act and that allowed folks to be able to file, you know, privately and, and take away some of the some of the churn that that would go through the press when when uh, all your interactions with the SEC would all get published, <laughs> but uh, uh, you know then uh, certainly Jawbone. Unfortunately, that was really just about constant fundraising and a business that just had so much debt it was really an anchor. Uh, Open Door had you know an entirely new model for transacting, and you had a, a capital markets function is the most critical piece in being able to grow that business and convincing folks that real estate downturns really won't kill such a company. <laughs> that certainly was challenging, but, but obviously the company is now public and done pretty well. You know, I, overall, my biggest learning probably throughout all these experiences is you really need to ruthlessly assess your own strengths and weaknesses. And that really needs to come from, you know, peers, mentors, and, and leaders that you work around. And then make sure you hire a team that can compensate for your own weaknesses and gaps. So for example, if you're great at accounting, great, you better hire a really, really great FP&A leader, probably treasury, investor relations, some of these other functions that you may not be deeply, deeply uh, um, aware of exactly how to, how to do that job well, or you know, vice versa. But th those are things that I think, you know, we're kind of, as you go up, we're all kind of taught to try to you know, show that we can do everything. And the reality is, no one is great at everything. In fact, most people are probably really good at one or two key aspects of a CFO job, of which there's probably four or five key aspects. And so it's really making sure you hire for your weaknesses and, and then really, um, and really make sure you're constantly assessing <laughs> what those weaknesses are. Because I think weaknesses or gaps kind of, you know, continue as the world changes so quickly, they continue to evolve. Um, I would say, um, you know, one thing that's probably helped me a bit also is that, um, you know, I've joined companies at various stages. You know, when I was young, <laughs> I thought experience was overvalued. <laughs> uh, as I'm older, I realize that with experience, uh, I can be so much more efficient and get to the right answer faster. Uh, and sometimes that involves calling someone who knows it better than I do. Um, in fact, there's a, a principle at Amazon that has always stuck with me. It was a leadership principle that says, we do not suffer from the not invented here syndrome. 
And what I found is, I'll just be honest, a lot, you know, a lot of really sharp, especially younger folks really don't want to copy what someone else has done. They really want to go invent their own thing. And uh, it's a, it's, it's a, it's probably a great, a great skill in the CFO function. It's not, <laughs> I think it's uh, the CFO function experience and pattern recognition and making sure, cause you're trying to make sure you're looking around corners. You really want to try to leverage experience. I think maybe if you're in product that younger, unconstrained mindset is probably great in, in the CFO function. I, I think it could be a, a bit of a crutch. And so something that you really want to make sure you're covering. And I guess it's the showing the right judgment about when to copy and when to innovate. And in and, and a lot of companies, uh, you know, the way you need to innovate is not that large of a segment. The work that you're trying to do, you don't have to be meant to be done. So many things that are common in yeah. As a CFO, judgment usually is the result of either mistakes made, or hopefully, you're uh, smarter than than I've been many times, and you've been able to go find the right mentors and experts that can help you to make sure you're borrowing someone else's maybe mistake to make sure that you don't do it. Uh, but but ultimately, that's that that is critical. And so you, know, you talked a little bit about building good teams of people, and uh, you know, one of the things that a lot of people who are on that journey to being a CFO are aiming for that uh, role. You know, they have to obviously go through other roles, you know, manager, director, VP, and, and so on and so forth. The pyramid gets kind of uh, narrow as you, as you go. The number of roles available aren't that much. But as you think about, uh, you know, what the VPs that you've worked in your career who have been able to go up to that CFO level, uh, what in your mind sets you apart? When we were just catching up earlier, you were uh, talking about how Robin had just went public. Jason Monick was one of the other folks we've interviewed on this uh, uh, in this interview series. Uh, he actually worked for you at, at uh, Amazon and, and clearly he's now the CFO of a super impactful company. And when you think about people like him or, or, or others, you know, what is that difference that gets people from the VP stage to the CFO stage? And have you seen kind of maybe patterns you know, in your own experience or what sets uh, maybe what has set you apart or other people that you have seen set them apart from your peers in terms of what made them get progressively more responsibility over time. Right? Well, you mentioned Jason. So it's funny. I, I was made controller at Amazon for a whole bunch of, you know, crazy reasons that are not worth getting into. And, and I, you know, I, I think I was nine years into my career in public company. You know, I guess now I can say we had a number of SEC inquiries. We had all sorts of stuff going on. And um, my first job was to say, and honestly, I've been an auditor for four or five years in my career, and I'm an okay accountant, but not great. And Jason was this like incredible talent that I was like, you know, that guy should be, that guy should have my job. <laughs> and so basically, uh, you know, promoted him to assistant controller, and then he became controller, I think, like a year later, and then I moved into a different role. But it was like, to me, it was the, um, the perspective of trying to really assess, you know, I, I think what's the right skill set to really be excellent at whatever the, the role is. And, you know, so the folks that I've seen that have been able to go maybe from a VP finance to a CFO, I, I think they just have the humility to understand where, where are they really good and then where do they need to make sure, in this case, if you're going to be a controller, I, I have to be the controller. I need to make sure I have a team of folks that can make me better and make the team better. And I'm going to make sure that they get all the credit <laughs> because they did all the work. And so, you know, really, I think, um, 
uh, you know, just the, the leverage and the force multipliers that you get by really recognizing how to build great teams. And, um, and it's sometimes, again, that's addressing your weaknesses or trying to just find people that really are, are just talents and folks that, you know, at Amazon, we used to, we, you know, we created something called the bar raiser program. And the idea was you want to hire people that you believe could be your boss in the next five years. And that principle, um, was something that I always followed. And I think if, if that mindset for me is one of the things I've seen that really allows folks uh, to do well, because it, it is a team sport and your ability to build that team is where you get leverage and where, where success comes. Got it. And so, you know, in terms of the roles you've picked, right? If you look back, uh, you've been CFO of public companies, you've been CFO of fast-growing uh, private companies, how do you think about you know, uh, uh, whether uh, the relative importance of a company being private or public? Because I've had uh, one example I can think of is Mike Dinsdale, uh, who's at Gusto and DoorDash and a bunch of companies. Yeah, so Mike, yeah. So Mike uh, uh, I remember him telling me about how he just wants to be at, you know, uh, at a growth company that's private. And by the time it starts to get like, I'm out. Like that, that's too painful. And, and I see that's not what he enjoys. And, so we've had kind of conversations about that. How do you think about that? Right? Because you've done both, right? So does it even play into your decision-making process when you're looking at an opportunity and, and what attracts you or not? And how do you think about that difference? Well, so what I've learned uh, for me is the single most important factor is, I mean, there's the table stakes of what's the industry, you know, what's the opportunity and, you know, kind of stuff. I think that that's pretty easy for most people to say, yeah, this fits for what I'm interested in. But to me, the single most important factor is, is there a fit with the CEO? And um, I, I, what I, I've learned is, you know, um, I've talked to so many like founder CEO types in the Valley since I've been here for five or six years and a bunch of companies that have done incredibly well. And most of the time, you know, what I've, I've learned from talking to them is it depends on where they are at the, the phase of the company. And, and that very much, I think it's very important to figure out where they are in their journey. For example, if you're an early stage founder CEO, they typically are not looking for an experienced public company CFO that can tell them about all the things that can go wrong. That's just not what they're looking for. But also it's because if it's an early stage company, they're probably going, looking to break glass and all these things that they've learned from you know, various you know, product luminaries in the Valley. If that's the case, then you probably, that's a different type of a CFO who's probably gonna be maybe earlier stage and they're not focused on all the things that could go wrong. They're more focused on how do I create, you know, a, a really strong FP&A team that can make sure we really have great partnership with the business and we can have, you know, a very clear understanding of all the metrics, how they're moving and whether or not to go in the right direction. And that's really, really important for an early stage company. When you get to public company, uh, I remember I remember when I left Amazon, the CFO, uh, a mentor of mine, uh, he basically said, "You realize, you know, I used to be the CFO of GE. I think it was Lighting and a couple other companies. You know, he's like, those are my favorite roles because I got to go focus purely on helping drive the business. Once I became public CFO, fifty percent of my time has to go to making sure that Socks is completely, you know, it's a pass. There's like, there basically is a whole bunch of pass fail." Uh, topics that you have to get a pass. And so what that means is you're probably not going to go as deep into the business as you might have liked when you were a divisional CFO. So, so I kind of feel like on the early stage companies, a lot of those companies are looking for someone more like a divisional CFO, 
Or are you really helping to drive a certain aspect of the business and not really, you know, worrying about some of the things that could go wrong? Because when you're private, you know, there's just a much limited, much more limited things that can really kill you or really hurt you as a, as a business. So, so for me, it really is, is like, so what is that CEO? What are they looking for? Where is the company in its kind of journey? And then what's the right kind of uh, experience to match that? Um, you know, ultimately, I, I think their early stage is awesome and they're fun, but that, that really plays to certain types of skills. Then there's the, the bigger, larger public company uh, role, which I think plays on a different set of skills. Um, that said, I think they're both great. It just depends on what your experience is, what your own kind of pattern recognition is, and where you think you can add comparable kind of advantage that, you know, maybe someone else couldn't add. And so that's, that's why I think it's, it's really unique to the, the CEO, unique to the company, unique to the stage. Got it, that's great. So shifting focus a little bit uh, in terms of, you know, your own growth journey, leadership and, and management and things like that. Uh, let's talk about mentors for a bit, right? Like how important were mentors to your, because so, you talked a little bit earlier about how you like to use other people uh, as, as sounding boards and learning from their mistakes and, uh, you know, were mentors important to you? And, and how did you approach uh, mentorship? Jason, for example, I remember him telling me that, I don't know if it was you, but he talked about a leader who challenged him about, hey, what are you going to do X years into the future? And he then went back and wrote down his, you know, uh, I don't know, 10-year plan or whatever it is. And then he methodically worked towards hitting that. So there are people who kind of take a very methodical approach to career planning. And there are, you know, those who I also I've spoken with who take a little bit more of a, yeah, I'm going to put myself in interesting situations, work with smart people, and then good things will happen. And, and so are you a planner or, or are you a, hey, let's see how things go uh, kind of person? And, and how did uh, mentorship and, and other people around you play a kind of role in, in the journey you have? First of all, that was great advice that Jason got, and that was too smart to come from me. I think actually, I, I think it came from uh, it came from the chief accounting officer, who was uh, the old you know, great uh, leader. That that person is an, another uh, great leader who's who's taken a couple company, couple companies public and, and whatnot. But I think that's who it was. But anyways, um, I think the the but overall the importance of mentors. I, I don't know as a CFO. I don't. It it may be the single other than that hiring the the kind of ruthlessly assessing your strengths and making sure you're hiring for your weaknesses. I would say probably the second most important thing is building that mentor network. I think there's two different types of groups. So there's the mentor network that help you grow throughout your career. And that is, I mean, I, there's honestly nothing more valuable for me than that. Uh, I actually didn't get my MBA, which a lot of CFOs get MBAs. Um, and, you know, I, I certainly hired a lot of MBAs, <laughs> but, uh, but at the end of the day, for me, it was, I found that like learning, you know, while doing versus kind of case or classroom learning just, I don't know, just worked better for me. That said, there's many, many ways to get there. I think having mentors and then having, uh, being put into roles to get those experiences, there's, there's many different ways to kind of get the necessary pattern recognition skills, I think that, that one needs. I do think mentors are critical. Once you are uh, in, in, the, in the development phase of your career, once you're you know, in the CFO role, I think having mentors almost on every single topic. I, I, I'd say the older and more experienced I am in my, I guess, fourth CFO job, I have, I spend more time reaching out to mentors now than I probably did at first. I think I was probably a little too stubborn early on and didn't realize just because I thought I'd seen a lot of stuff on Amazon and thought it was a great analog. It, it wasn't. <laughs> what I found is that in your industry, in a specific period of time with a specific, you know, 
whatever the issue may be, there's probably someone who has seen it more recently and has better perspective than what your own recognition may have been from a, an earlier time. And so I have a, a vast, vast group of, of mentors that I'm constantly checking in with. And, and I think that's, it's just absolutely invaluable. Um, and, and, and from, you know, technical aspects to even just people who I think are excellent people managers and that I strive to try to be a better people manager and want to learn from them. Uh, you know, so it's, it's really across the hard skills as well as even soft skills. And I'm assuming given the position you're at now, you're paying back and you are mentoring uh, a bunch of folks who are coming up behind you, right? And so when you think about the patterns that ultimately make people successful, right? Uh, you know, when, when you feel like, okay, this guy, you talked about how you felt Jason should be doing your job and uh, this person is, is on the path to greatness and, and they do big things and they will be a safer one day. What makes you look at someone? What are some of those patterns of behaviors or attitude or skills that make you say, uh, you know, that uh, they are on that right path, right? Um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, there's a book a few years ago, uh, Growth Mindset, uh, by Carol Dweck, or maybe it's just called Growth, or Mindset or Growth. I, I don't remember what, exactly what it's called, but that book kind of encapsulated a lot of the stuff that I think I've always looked for, which is folks that have that curiosity, the willingness to know that we're never a finished product and that we're constantly evolving and learning. And even when you think you've gotten really good at one thing, there's probably a whole other set of areas that you have so much to learn on. Like for me, for example, behavioral economics is an area that I just constantly keep reading as many books as, as I can get my hands on because they're just trying to understand how people are motivated, trying to understand the signals and the biases and all that kind of stuff is so critical to be able to try to figure out how to negotiate to get what you think needs to get done, done. And so, I don't know, I, I think, um, you know, so it's, it's, uh, uh, yeah, there's, anyways, that, that's, there's, there's, uh, there's such, uh, such, there's just so many areas that I think um, that, you know, it's just being humble, uh, being curious, um, you know, realizing, you know, it, there's like a fine line between uh, being humble, but not being so completely stressed out by the fact that you can't possibly think, I mean, every day there's a new cyber threat or some new existential threat that we're not aware, <laughs> that you weren't aware of. And so I think it's, it's, it's trying to have the humility, but then also figure out how to also have the, you know, whatever you need to make sure you're staying, you know, calm and whether it's mindfulness meditation or whether it's exercise or, whether it's reading or whatever you do to try to make sure that you're trying to find that balance of, of humility, curiosity, but then also not um, completely getting consumed by the, the, the threats that exist. Okay. So let's talk about management and leadership for a bit, right? And you know, given the position you're at, so much of what you do today, you're not in the weeds, right? It is about leadership, management, hiring, selling to an extent, did all that come naturally to you? Is, is that something you had to work at and, and uh, get better at over time? And how do you approach that? So here was the, um, I, um, I, what I try to do is, is try to make sure that I have, you know, really built, I'm constantly like in the team building phase. Like how do I make sure that our, we have the best possible team that we could have? So that's something I spend a lot of time on. 
Um, and then, and then how do I make sure we're developing, you know, if you hire a lot of great people, that's awesome. But now you got another challenge. You got to make sure that they're all challenged and that they feel like they're growing and geez, the war for talent right now, I don't know if it's ever been stronger and like, you know, there's just opportunities everywhere. And so, you know, the, one of the things I do is I measure to me, success is measured by how many CFOs have come from the finance teams that I've been able to, to, to lead. And, and that's, I think, you know, at Groupon, there's something like, I think I counted like 25 CFOs from, from there. And then from the other company, you know, my other companies I've been at, there, there's, you know, a, a, at least a couple of handfuls. And th that to me is, is ultimately, you know, uh, what I care most about. But then what that means is you have to be willing to help develop people. Then you also have to be willing to say, hey, you got a great opportunity. I, I like, I'm just going to applaud and support you. And uh, I had two of those this week where, you know, there's just so much opportunity out there that folks are getting really big opportunities. They're leaving for the right reasons. And so they're great opportunities. And so I say congratulations and, you know, happy for you. Let me know I can do to, to, to help. Um, I think, um, but, but that piece, that's, that's one. The second piece, I think, is while I'm not in the details, as a CFO, you have to have that spidey sense of where do I have to go dive incredibly deep? I can't micromanage people. No one wants it and I don't have time to do it. But I do have to know that, you know, we just implemented SAP, uh, did it in 12 months, which was great, except for the fact that means year two is really the second year of implementation. <laughs> and so, you know, so there's been all sorts of stuff that popped out. And so now I had to kind of roll out, you know, pull out my process hat and start getting into, wait, wh wh where are we seeing issues with billings? And then, and what does that do for collections and revenue recognition and how, you know, now I'm having to jump in and make sure we're, you know, reevaluating the process maps and making sure we understand where things are falling apart. And so, you know, sometimes you do have to kind of jump in there and start to, you know, use some of the experience you may have had earlier in your life, but that's, and, and I won't necessarily have all the answers, but at least make sure we're thinking about it the right way. And so to me, it's, it's the, the that people development piece and and hiring and development and that's that's a huge part of the job and then this is this constant looking at all the stuff out there and figuring out where do i have to kind of go dive deep because at the end of the day i do have to sign i have to sign the 10k in the queue and uh everything has to be has to be right and so I, that does mean i will have to do uh you know some rigorous inspection you know where necessary which unfortunately as a cfo it's pretty common it's pretty common that's necessary yeah, and I want to pull up a relevant question here from Tori. Uh, and, if, and if you have questions, the Q&A button uh, in the Zoom window below, so please uh, feel free to ask. But this is relevant to what we're talking about. Tori wants to know, do you see the safer position as a sales position or a finance position or something else? And if I were to elaborate and add to that, you know, how much of your job is just selling because you're, paid, you're a public company CFO, you're probably talking to analysts, and outward facing, and you're selling to Canada. Yeah. Just look at your calendar in any given week. How much time is actually spent on finance-related things versus you just being a salesman, boss plan, right? Um, it depends on the week. I, I would say, especially you know, at Splunk, we you know we're a, a SaaS you know we're moving to a SaaS company that is you know selling software and a couple billion dollars worth of it. So there are a lot of uh, you know CFOs and other executives that I'm interacting with, sometimes trying to help uh, you know uh, the sales process, um, whether it's helping on the total cost of ownership, which is always a big deal when it's infrastructure software, or whether or not it's just you know trying to help. Um, just trying to help the process. I mean, there, that, that is definitely a piece of it. Um, you know, I, I think for the most part, um, I don't know, when I think of sales, I, I also think of, 
every week I'm having to help sell internally to the organization why this SOX control is really a great idea. <laughs> or, or, you know, right now, why we should have maybe one more layer of cybersecurity. And, and here's like this extra hoop that we need to jump to. And let me see if I can sell to you why this is great for the company and why it's great for everyone. And so there's, there, you know, I think as a CFO, you're selling, you know, constantly daily, whether it's internal or external um, or, you know, but, but I, but I do think um, it's the influence skills. And that's why I like that behavioral psychology aspect I was talking about. Like everyone has biases. And so you have to understand that when people see the CF, it's a sales team sees the CFO coming. It's usually not because they think I'm going to help. <laughs> it's, it's usually because I want to talk about, you know, the, the compensation process or, or, you know, or something that's probably not going to be uh, giving them more money, but uh, you know, and so I, you know, and I, you know, so I always try to make sure I'm not playing into pre, to preconceived notions and trying to um, trying to make sure that I'm always, you know, figuring out how do I find whatever I'm trying to get done is beneficial for the other side. And speaking of, you know, talking about giving people money or not, as the case may be, uh, how, how do you think about relationships between you and the other leaders in the team and your teams and the rest of the business and other parts of the organization? In general, how do you see the finance and accounting teams being seen as this back office function of people who say no, right? And uh, how do you kind of strive to build those relationships uh, with the rest of the business? And what are some lessons you've learned around that? Okay, it's a cheesy, you've heard it before, but what I always try to tell uh, the accounting or like when I interact with the legal team is like, how do we say yes? And then a lot of times it's yes, but. <laughs> and so we try to get to, you know, I need rev you know, I need X amount of revenue on this deal. And I'll say yes, but, you know, here are kind of the constraints that we're dealing with. Can you help us with, you know, these factors and, and see what we can, uh, you know, modify or negotiate? Or, uh, I really want, um, I just want you to approve my invoice right now. Okay, yes, but I, I'm happy to approve it. We just also have to make sure that all the people that actually have a hand in making sure that it gets done and implemented and paid and coded correctly and, you know, isn't violating some legal, you know, terms of exposing the company and the rest that all those folks are signed off. So how, how do we, how do we get that done quickly? You know, and so I, I think it's, it's, it's just a lot of yes, buts. <laughs> it's just, it's just, and I think once you provide the context for why, the perceived bureaucracy, because usually with accounting, I think they think of most of the folks think of things as being bureaucratic. And I, I always like to say, you know, bureaucracy is unnecessary, you know, steps. Um, you know, good process is having just enough steps. Sometimes there's mistakes and so, or, or the process is imperfect, so you can escalate and that's fine. Uh, just want to make sure that context of why we're asking for something is done. And, and you know, probably occasionally I'll get a I'll find out that something is bureaucratic and doesn't make any sense. And I'll say, great, sorry, let me go fix it. I've certainly had that in, you know, travel and expense, you know, processing is always something that salespeople are always tired of. Why do I have to give so many receipts? And why do I have to do, you know, and so it's, you know, it's uh, always trying to help under provide context and then, and then also be open to figuring out what can we do better. And, and I think there's always things we can do better. And speaking of relationships across the company, you mentioned earlier how you place a lot of importance in the CEO uh, relationship at the end of the day, right? In your decisions of who to, which companies to go work in and all that. So uh, what are some of those lessons uh, over the course of your career as you've partnered with CEOs of very meaningful companies, uh, you know, different personalities, different expectations, uh, what, what, what lessons have you learned in terms of that all-important partnership uh, with the CEO uh, and specifically maybe around um, just dealing with different personalities, setting expectations and how you go about building that relationship? 
Yeah, I think um, uh, I, I'm always trying to, and I'm not great at it, but I'm always trying to put myself in the other person's shoes to understand what are the stresses and what are the challenges they're dealing with. A CEO deals with, a CEO job is absolutely ridiculous. Like the amount of constraints and uh, pressures and competing priorities and objectives. So, so you know, from my perspective, a job is great if I have a strong partnership with a CEO, kind of full stop. If we have to go climb a mountain that seems, you know, you know, un, 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 like kind of unfortunately or unrealistically too high with the right partnership, uh, I'm willing to give it a shot. And so I, I think um, one of the things I've learned in my last couple of jobs is doing, you know, there's certainly some personality tests, you, know, you can do Myers-Briggs or you can do, there's a lot more, more complicated tests that a bunch of different, you know, firms can help help with doing that to at least understand how someone thinks, how they process, how they communicate. I find really, really helpful because uh, at least then you can almost kind of say, oh, well, I know you like to hear, thing, hear things like this. I like to hear things like this. Let's recognize each other's differences and then try to actually solve for them because no two people are, are really the same. So that that is a good tool. And then I think um, ultimately um, it's, it's usually, I try not to get too much into debate, but get more into what are we trying to accomplish? And okay, so let's identify what we're trying to accomplish and then what are the constraints and what can we do to get to yes, but, <laughs> you know? And so to not say, nope, can't do that, but to be, well, you know, we, we can do what you want. Here are the constraints. Are you, you know, and, and let's, you know, and then usually it ends up being like, ooh, those constraints are really horrible. I don't know if I like those. Okay, well then maybe we could try something different, but at least, you know, instead of starting with no, you're, you're providing the context on the yes, but. So I, I find that ends up being probably one of the most important um, approaches. The other thing, you know, I, I've had one of the CEOs I worked with was just ruthless in giving feedback, which was excellent because, you know, him and I were kind of going off course. And then it was because I realized that he hadn't been a CEO before. He didn't understand what my team did. <laughs> and so then, you know, he understood the FP&A piece, but he didn't understand any of the other pieces. And so once, you know, we got kind of deeper into, here's all the things that that team is working on. Here's the accomplishments they've had. And here's how I benchmarked that against some other experiences. It was like, oh, oh, wow. I thought this person wasn't useful. Now I actually find out they're, they're a rock star and I need to give them more attention. And now, you know, and so, you know, so a lot of it is sometimes just figuring out where those maybe knowledge gaps or deficiencies, maybe. Got it. Great. And so I'm, I'm going to go into the last uh, couple of questions here and uh, then go into Q&A. Uh, if Great. you have questions, again, Q&A button at the bottom of the Zoom window, please go ahead and, and ask your questions and I'll come back to those. Uh, and let's just quickly talk about the future. I, I always like to ask uh, the CFOs to kind of uh, look around the corner a little bit. But before we do that, uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on how the role has changed, right? And finance and accounting, you've been in CFO roles for about, I guess, 10 years now and in many other operating roles before that. But we look back, say, 20, 20 odd years. Uh, how do you think the role of finance and accounting in businesses itself has evolved? Has it even, right? And so you've had that kind of uh, opportunity to see the evolution. I'd love to hear your thoughts on has anything changed? So um, I, I was just very fortunate to have worked for a few great CFOs at Amazon and two came from GE. And I, I think, you know, for the younger folks, they wouldn't know this, but in the late nineties, GE was were kind of regarded as the CFO and maybe the operating executive factory. Like that's just, there was just so many that came out of there, uh, out of that company. And, and really um, the role of both the divisional and even the overall CFOs was taught to be very expansive and deeply integrated into the business. 
And so I was very lucky to have worked in that environment at Amazon for 12 years. Um, and, and what I what I kind of seen, I think now there's actually quite a few. There wasn't a lot of Amazon CFOs 10 years ago, and now there's a lot. <laughs> and um, I, I've seen that. And then as Amazon's done well, there's a lot of you know interest and in, tell us what you know what, how'd you do things and, and so on. And and ultimately the the approach was the CFO was really uh, you know there was just oh, they always had a seat at the table. So as a divisional CFO, whenever you know. Bezos would meet with someone, they'd want to have the leader plus the CFO there. I'd say at Splunk, I do the exact same thing. I want, I want the CFO who is the unbiased truth seeker, truth teller, and then the business owner who, of course, is always trying to explain why they're crushing it in whatever way. <laughs> usually, um, maybe not quite that, uh, that obvious, but usually how things are maybe a little better than one might seem. And so the, the role of, of the CFO is to try to make sure that, no, you know, here, here's the unvarnished you know reality of what's actually happening so i think that 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 approach i've seen it just seems like it's become much more prevalent and having these much more much less of pure budget and control and now much more deeply expansive integrated in the business is a is a key piece of the job and you know certainly for myself now my current job at splunk i mean we spend right now we're going through a crazy transformation where you know we went from two billion dollars of on-premise enterprise software to now trying to be a you know, two plus billion dollars SaaS company, doing that publicly is really, really complicated <laughs> because our metrics, no one looks like us. And, and in the market, when you are a, a unique animal, you're either a monopoly and treated very well, <laughs> or you're, uh, you're, you're kind of a, you know, you're the, the, you know, the, the ugly duckling or something. And so, cause your numbers just don't make a lot of sense. They don't compare to anybody. So, so from that perspective, it's just made it to where the, the team just has to constantly be digging into things and helping myself, the CEO and our board and investors understand why do these numbers look like this? And why is that still actually fine? And how do you unpack those pieces and try to make sure that really we're not fooling ourselves and the business really is doing as well as we think it is. Uh, that's just uh it's been such a, a key role um, uh, for us. And I think it seems like that seems to be kind of how the, the world has evolved and the CFO function has evolved in the last, you know, probably decade. Got it. And so again, let's look at the future, right? And there are a bunch of folks here in the audience who will be CEOs in the next, say, five years, 10 years. And, and uh, what would your advice to them be in terms of skills they should potentially focus on uh, that you think will become important as uh, the market evolves? and then people get into those goals. So at, at Splunk, we like to say that every problem is a data problem. <laughs> and I do, I do fundamentally believe that. Uh, it's funny how you know, I, I see um, you know, different executives talking about the importance of intuition and all that kind of stuff. The reality is intuition is critical, but you don't want to apply it to everything because then you're just going to make a lot of mistakes. If you do really good sophisticated analysis, understand the data and then figure out what is the dependent variable, then I'm gonna use my intuition on that one key dependent variable. Then I have a very high likelihood of, of probably of being successful. And so um, it's funny, actually the day I joined Splunk, they made this special shirt for me, uh, finances data too. <laughs> and uh, I mean, of course it is. It's just, we happen to sell a lot of cybersecurity and you know observability and IT software. And so not as much in finance side, but, uh, but that may change in the future. But Anyway, so, so I think that, um, but to, to your point or to the question, so CFOs just have to understand how to manage large data sets. There's so many great tools, you know, uh, nowadays that exist. 
to help you do that. It, in fact, it's almost hard to kind of <laughs> sift the, the signal from the noise because there's so many different products out there. But, but being able to manage large data sets, being able to utilize AI, ML, and some of the things that honestly technology can actually do better than people. Uh, technology is not great at intuition, but it is really good at, you know, sifting through data, finding anomalies, uh, uh, you know, finding patterns, all that kind of stuff. And so, so I think uh, the CFO of the future is going to have to have a, a firm command of not just analysis and data, but also how to think about some of these newer tools, whether it's robotic process automation, whether it's, um, there's a whole bunch of different AI and, uh, and ML um, technology sitting on top of things that used to be pretty manual. And, and I think, you know, as the CFOs are constantly trying to find productivity, being able to use such tools is critical to be able to get the cost productivity that someone needs. And then also making sure that, you know, one of the things I had learned early in my career was we want people to not be reporting the news. We want them to be, you know, telling you <laughs> the news. And so we don't want people creating reports. We want people creating really interesting, intuitive, uh, you know, report, uh, I'd say maybe, maybe more like narratives of what happened as opposed to just showing you just a bunch of metrics. And so, so that's, that's, I think, been a, a movement that is only going to continue to accelerate. Um, I'd say that's one. And then two, I do think this notion of, uh, of constantly being able to, um, to, you know, to, there's a lot, you know, understanding people and personalities will never, ever go out of style. <laughs> and so I saw someone ask for a recommendation. Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, single best book on, I mean, he's the, he, he's one of the co-creators of behavioral economics. Um, I thought Think Again by Adam Grant last, this last year was a great book as well. It kind of goes through that. How do you, you know, how do you kind of, how do you improve your ability to uh, interpret and communicate? And I, I think that will never go out of style. Um, and it's so, so, it's so important for a CFO to not be the blocker or perceived as the blocker, but perceived as the valuable business partner that, that we all want to be. All right, that's excellent. So I'm going to jump into questions, but before I do that, uh, I'm going to just take 20 seconds to tell you, for those of you who might not be familiar with what Airbase does, we're a spend management platform focused. If you're a smaller mid-market company, you're probably, you have a corporate card, you have a bill payment system, you have an expense reimbursement system and ad hoc processes for request approvals, four or five different systems. We essentially bring all of that together into one seamless end-to-end -end platform, right? And so if you're interested in learning a bit more, Laura's going to pop up a quick yes, no question. Please let us know if you want to learn more and we'll uh, get back to you. Uh, awesome. So uh, Jason, now I, let me jump into uh, audience questions, right? And um, you know, I, I'll bring those up. You already answered one question about the book recommendation on, on behavioral economics. Uh, and, uh, you know, another one is about mentorship. Anthony has this question about, you know, he's found it difficult to find mentors that is, aren't just Consultants charging uh, money, right? And uh, now, how how did you go about finding your mentors? Right? Was it just hustling, random cold outreach, or network? And what are some of those tactics you used to find your mentors that you were talking about? So yeah, I, I think so. I will say I, I I do. You said earlier, you asked earlier. I I do mentor a number of folks, and a lot of folks that have come to me. It's either because I met them somewhere, but there's a lot of folks where. I'll get a connection from someone else I know saying, hey, so-and-so would really love to, to talk with you. And so I think you should, you know, LinkedIn is obviously fantastic at being able to find connections to folks that you think might be able to help. Um, 
you know, obviously I, I think consultants are useful to help you find the mentor as opposed to being the mentor <laughs> or, or being the, you know, so I think you can use, um, use your network, whether it's banker, bankers are also pretty good at that. They, they have a pretty good network and they can, you know, and, and that's helpful. I also, um, you know, there's different communities, there's different CFO communities you can be part of. Um, and a lot of those, you know, there's a couple I'm a part of where it's kind of the, you know, well, I call it fight club rules. I think they have a nicer name for it, but it's basically, you know, it's like whatever happens in those communities, you just talk openly, even if you're public or private, you talk about all sorts of material, non-public information, but you're just basically sharing, you know, you know, all of the, all of the different challenges you're dealing with and trying to find out from others who have dealt with it. Cause pretty much every problem you've dealt with, someone probably has, or is dealing with the same thing. And so that's where I think finding those communities uh, is, is also really helpful uh, if, if uh, you know, so I think it's, it's finding the mentors through your networks and then it's, it's being able to make sure you, you're part of these different communities where you can have these kind of somewhat closed dialogues where it's people that are in the same, your peers that are in the same situation. And then, then you'll get very open, honest answers. That's great. So Jeff has a question. You, you talked a little about how you don't have an MBA. You mostly learned on the fly and you did it on the job. And like Jeff's question is, there are still lots of companies out there that believe they need an MBA or credentials uh, for the CFO role. Any advice on uh, getting past those or opening some of those doors that might not as easily open if you don't have those credentials? I mean, in my experience, um, an MBA is just a, it, 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 you check, it's a, you know, a lot of times there's a check the box if you've got to have these X criteria. At the end of the day, what they really want is experience. An MBA will, you know, the first year of an MBA will teach you all the core skills if you didn't have a business undergrad. And the second year, you're going to go through tons of case you know, studies and try to walk through, you know, simulations that will help train you in how to think about something. Well, in my mind, the goal then is to say, why don't I just talk about the things I went through instead of the simulation, which you get an MBA, I'll just actually talk about these different experiences. And so from my perspective, if you, if you have to battle against that perception, then you're just gonna have to probably overdo why your experiences have given you as good or better education than the MBA would have. Um, and if someone doesn't agree with it, then fine, you probably, you know, it's not everyone, you know, not everyone agrees, but, but I do think, um, you know, if you look at a lot of the top CFOs at the big companies, most of, a lot of them don't have MBAs. A lot of them don't. In fact, I don't think Amazon, yeah, two of the four CFOs they've ever had didn't have MBAs. Pretty much everybody that uh, uh, I've interviewed in the series, they didn't even study finance or accounting, <laughs> most of them. Yeah. Yeah. I think Mark Hawkins of Salesforce, he had an operations approach background. So did uh, uh, Kelly Battles, who is a CFO of Quora and on and on and on, right? Like a lot of people who just came from very diverse kind of uh, backgrounds. And uh, I guess that's inspirational. And uh, so Melanie has this question about, uh, you know, during the pandemic, lots of organizations and CFOs really was scrutinizing uh, you know, the spending priorities. And you know, did you get a chance to use your expertise given where you are at Splunk uh, to yeah. you know, engage with customer CFOs or other leaders as they were thinking about? It's a great question. I mean, you you know this in your business, but I've, I'm learning. And I mean, I've seen it now for many years, but the cloud-based technologies, the more you can employ them, the more they are great because, you know, you pay as you go. And you're you're replacing in the old days, which used to be a lot of fixed cost or you know capex with opex, and a lot of these models have moved to more consumption-based pro 
pricing and all that kind of stuff. So, so from my perspective, I, I, I kind of look for every opportunity to try to move to more cloud-based technologies um, as much as possible. And then, you know, and then, you know, as I'm negotiating with each of these vendors, it's just like, prove to me how I'm going to get, you know, cost productivity by using your product. Because you have to prove to me my my cost of the product is not going to go up faster than my revenue, because <laughs> otherwise I'm not getting productivity. And so, at, you know, those discussions I generally find they always go pretty well as long as you're, you know. And I've had to do it with Salesforce. With uh, I used to have to do it with Splunk when I was on the other side. I've done I've done it with all you know with Coupa and now SAP uh, S for Hana and you know Workday and I mean you name uh, you know you, LinkedIn you name it we use all of them and I've used them at multiple companies and I, it does allow you to move faster so I, I do feel like that is uh, that's a huge force multiplier I, it's probably obvious but I think getting deeper into where you could even be using more cloud-based technologies uh, you will find more cost productivity honestly on almost every almost every item. On a related note, Beatrice is asking, uh, keeping in mind that you're a $24 billion public company, like what are the major tools that you, and uh, that your finance team is currently using that you can actually recommend that you're happy with? Of course, not all of those tools might be relevant to a 50, 100, 200, 300 employee company. Splunk is a large global public company, but... Uh, honestly, I, I don't know. I mean, what, what's cool is you can, I, I, I've used them at small companies too. So yeah, if you're a small company, you probably use NetSuite or maybe even use a Sage or one of the other competing products, but still a cloud-based uh, ERP is so much better than on-prem, not even, no, no question. Same with Workday, same with, um, you know, there's so many different outsourced payroll providers, depends on your international footprint. If, it, if it's US, it's really easy to use Workday. Um, and there's, you know, there's other competing products that will work really well as well. I, I think um, in terms of uh, the products we use, you know, we use Anaplan, which works well for us. We use, um, let's see, we use, um, try, we, I'm trying to think which, <laughs> if someone told, I think now we're using Concur because we went with SAP and they own Concur. I've used Coupa in the past, they were great. I've used Expensify, they work great on earlier stage companies. Uh, NetSuite actually works great when you're smaller. Um, we're using an SAP S4 HANA now, and you know it's too early to say it works great, but it will eventually. I've I've used it in the past. Um, uh, let's see. I think you know there are there are a lot of different and you know you, there's Alteryx and a few other pro, pro, you know technologies like that that can help with really large data sets and how do you like try to get out of Excel, which just you know we all have crashing PCs when the models get too big and that's really annoying. There's a number of different technologies out there that are useful. Um, uh, and then honestly, I, you know, I probably use more than anything else. I just use all the Google suite of products just because for all, you know, especially in Zoom where everything's collaborative, being able to have collaborative, you know, spreadsheets, you know, and, and you know, th that's pretty basic, but that's, um, it, it's so much faster. Um, anything that's not collaborative and cloud-based, I've tried to get rid of. <laughs> I just start with that as your single premise, and then uh, and if, if you you will find there are things that you're still using, try to get, try to see what's out there because you you can you can probably find something better. Got it. So, Jason, last question in your you know uh, huge amounts of free time as a public uh, company CFO, uh, what are you watching? What are you reading these days? Uh, you know, we'll uh, let's end with an easy one. 
Uh, an easy one. Okay, so uh, I I read a lot of books. I I generally um, I try to I I try to work out about an hour and a half to two hours a day, mostly because I listen to books and I and I read at the same time. Or I listen to a lot of books. Um, let's see. I let's see. What have I listened to? Uh, I thought Noise, which is the new Daniel Kahneman book, which basically goes through. Um, not there's bias in every decision in every data set, but there's also noise. And so being able to reduce noise, not eliminate noise, but reduce noise. I thought that was good. I did read the Amazon Unbound just to find out what they had to say. <laughs> that was good. Code Breaker is probably one of my favorite books for the last maybe six months to a year. That was to really understand, you know, uh, it, it's a great book for many reasons, but um, Working Backwards is a favorite. <laughs> um, uh, written by a good friend, a couple of good friends of mine uh, from Amazon. It just explains how they how they operate, and I think that that, that book is probably one of the best for finding mechanisms. Like how it's funny in that book, a lot of people at Splunk have said, "I'm tired of hearing about Amazon stories." And I'm like, to be clear, everything in Working Backwards, none of it was invented by Amazon. Most of it came from GE, Intuit, or other great companies that they just kind of borrowed and tweaked. But this is how they implemented it, and it worked well. And I, I think that's a that's a great book. Um, and then I also, I guess last one is, you know, there's so much going on in the world of like trying to understand inherent bias and, um, and then, you know, on the uh, DEI uh, front, I wanted, I read the new Jim Crow, which was actually about 10 years old, but it's a, a, an excellent book to try to just understand some of the, the systemic racism that I just, as a white male, I don't, I don't, I don't experience it. And so you know, that's another one of those trying to read books to help you understand perspectives that you couldn't possibly know. Um, and so I thought that was great. Anyways, that's just a few examples. Thank you, Jason. This has been fantastic. Thank you so much again for taking the time to join us and share uh, all these thoughts and, and, and the wisdom earned over the last uh, 20, 25 years. I really appreciate that and uh, uh, have a good uh, rest of the day. Thank you so much. And I hope it was useful. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks. Bye. All right. See you. Bye.